0: So now we're about a week into this retreat, however long you're going to be here. And a week is enough time to find out that maybe what you thought was going to happen isn't happening, to find that everybody's practice is starting to develop in your own particular way. People start going into different areas, and that's exactly as it should be happening. But it's also a time when Some people are just going along, and some people, without realizing it, you can uh, a little bit find yourself struggling with, well, this isn't really, in some subtle way, I didn't think it would be like this. I don't know how I thought it would be, but not exactly like this. What I want to talk about tonight, actually, feels like the same talk over and over, but (laughs) 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 that's Okay. There's a a phrase in Pali, it's in the suttas often, yata bhuta, which means things as they are, reality as it is, yata bhuta. And one of the um, kind of deep high insights, an insight, uh, an understanding that's the ground for uh, liberation is in Pali, yata bhuta jnana dasana, You see that a lot in the suttas, which is generally translated as knowledge and vision of things as they are. So this seeing things as they are, reality as it is, yata bhuta, is really the core, the essence, the the seed of our whole practice. I mean, it's basically what we're yammering on about all the time, seeing things as they are, yata bhuta this knowledge and vision, I mean just in a moment, but when there's this real kind of an opening, let's call that insight, that that jnana, that wisdom of knowledge and things as they are, it leads to liberation because when the perception, when the mind, when the heart is truly perceiving things, self, others, sense, experience, whatever, whatever in a moment, as it truly is, seeing as it truly is in that moment, the wisdom of that releases for that moment the mind, the heart from clinging, from aversion, from sense of me, because those reactions, those responses to life are based on our ongoing misperception and misunderstanding of things as they really are. So that's what's like some kind of simple but also magical about the Buddha's understanding and about our practice is that we say it over and over, but we're not here to create some other reality or to get out of this one. We're here to actually find out what the heck this reality actually is. And so I just love that phrase, yata Buddha, And what allows for our accurate seeing things as they are in a moment Mindfulness, of course, I mean, obviously, clear perception. And what allows for clear perception for mindfulness is the quality of, in a moment, just one moment, of acceptance. To see how reality is in this moment, it's necessary to be fully present with total acceptance of things as they are in this moment. And so I want to just elaborate on that a bit, on Yata Bhuta on what hides things as they are, and how mindfulness can help with that. Acceptance of things as they are, with mindfulness, with clear connectedness, opens the mind, the heart, to the liberation, the freedom of non-clinging. And that allows for, not passivity, this acceptance is not about passivity, allows for a clear, compassionate, appropriate response, because we're actually responding to what's actually going on, rather than our ideas and constructions and delusions about things. But don't believe me. So, as I was saying, when, when we talk about it, when it's talked about, when the roots of our suffering, our confusion, are talked of as the kaleses, as the qualities, the factors in the heart and mind in a moment, of greed, of hatred, aversion, or fear, of ignorance, confusion, delusion. We say that these are the seeds of suffering. On one level at times, I mean, that's obvious. Usually it's more obvious with aversion and hatred and fear than the others. It's obvious that in themselves, we don't like them too much and that they seem to be causing us suffering. But that's not really the real kind of most subtle, most pervasive way these things cause us suffering. They, they contribute to they're the, the causes of our confusion, of our delusion, because when greed, hatred, confusion are in the consciousness coloring our heart and mind, coloring our perception, we don't, we cannot perceive or recognize accurately. And so the, what happens when greed or hatred, fear, or ignorance, confusion, the me story, is clouding, when we don't recognize that's present in the mind, and it's clouding, coloring our perception, we can't. There's no way to see accurately. And so what we respond to isn't what's happening at all. And it just keeps on, you know, self-perpetuating, rolling snowball. And we get further and further from what's really going on and wonder why our actions with the best will in the world just don't seem to achieve what we want. So what I want to talk about mostly here is the first two noble truths. I think it's really interesting, and the more I've practiced, the more I've come to really uh, appreciate that when the Buddha decided to describe to the world, to people. What we need to know to actually recognize things as they are. What we need to know to free the heart and mind from anguish, from confusion. The first thing he picked, his first truth, as you know, as it was talked about the other night, is this truth of, called dukkha. And I want to talk about that a bit because I think it's profound And if it was as obvious as it seems to be, why would the Buddha need to lay it out and say that this truth needs to be understood? And that's the action that he recommends for the First dukkha. The truth of dukkha is to be understood, right? Not to be avoided, not to be transcended. It's to be understood. And so I just want to talk a little bit about I mean my understanding, my limited understanding, things I've read, that just help give a sense of the the naturalness of it, of this truth of dukkha, and how understanding it contributes to recognizing accurately and how that contributes to ease, freedom, peace of mind, peace of heart, heart and mind of non-clinging. So to be understood dukkha, we all know this well, probably you all know this word, and generally shorthand translated as suffering, right? And often when we hear the first noble truth from, from non Buddhists particular, they say, well, Buddhists say life is suffering. What a downhead thing. I'm not really interested in that. And then so called Buddhists also say life is suffering, you know. The first noble truth is dukkha. Dukkha translated as suffering, but this is a very, uh, too narrow of an understanding for the the depth of the First Noble Truth. Dukkha is a word that can be used in a couple of different ways. One is dukkha as pain, dukkha. So when the First Noble Truth is written out, one aspect of dukkha is dukkha dukkha, just flat out, you know, unpleasant pain. And when uh, in in the sutras, when the vedana, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral vedana, or feeling tone, Andrea talked about, Andrea talked about today, the unpleasant physical one is named dukkha. Okay, so it's often used in that word of just plain unpleasantness, suffering. But in terms of the first noble truth, dukkha, being what it is, it's it's that unpleasantness suffering is way too limited of an understanding. Because when we think of it that way, which, I mean, I often do too, I often use the word dukkha specifically to relate to unpleasantness. You know, we'll talk about dukkha times in retreat. We don't mean the times you're lost in rapture, do we? We mean the times when it's... uh, But that's not the first noble truth. (laughs) So you're good, just laughing about dukkha. That helps. It kind of lightens it up. That's a good thing. Don't put it in a little hole. <laughs> One of my teachers, Nia, pointed out that when we think of dukkha as suffering, then as soon as we think about the first noble truth, isn't there a tinge of aversion? You think, first noble truth, uh, dukkha suffering. <laughs> you don't go, wow, how freeing is this? And that's not help. The Buddha's not saying, yeah, let's get down with aversion. That's what I'm all about. I don't think so. And so as soon as we're into, oh, First Noble Truth, uh, we're not getting it. We're not broadening the look at it. And what I have to say may not exactly lead you into bliss. But anyway, (laughs) just to get a sense that the understanding of the First Noble Truth has nothing to do with aversion. It has everything to do with freeing our heart and mind from confusion. So the derivation of the word dukkha, any of you have read Analayo's book on the Satipatthana, which is really, I think it's a great book because he pulls together so many different strands. It's really good scholarship. And if you read the footnotes, it takes you in all different directions. And he's fairly balanced about bringing in different opinions. So anyway, just a little plug for that when he's describing the uh, etymology of the word dukkha. And I love what he says. He said, one etymology of it is, is a, as if disharmony, friction. And he gives the, the de- derivation of duh de of dukkha being uh, difficulty. And the "kha one way it can be difficulty. And k is like the, the hole, the axle hole in the round wooden wheel of an ox cart which they still use these in Burma, is this big round wooden wheel and a hole through which the wooden axle goes. And if it's not properly fitting in its hole, and mostly it's not, these aren't exactly you know, highly streamlined machines, there's friction, some friction, some rubbing every time the wheel goes. That's dukkha. This kind of friction. And another derivation, he puts it as to standing badly, uncomfortable, uneasiness that's really more the sense of dukkha. And not that it's good or bad, but it's just calling us to just notice accurately in our life that so much of the time there's this sense of it just doesn't quite fit, you know? It's not that everything's awful suffering all the time, but there is that, and that's part of it, the dukkha-dukkha part is saying, yeah, you know, there's pain, there's birth is pain, there's old, e- old age, sickness, and death. I mean, none of us, no one gets out alive, right? That, that's part of it. That's not all of it. That's part of it. But when even that, obvious as it seems, someone was just saying today, and we all do it, well, it's obvious, but my mind goes okay to other people, right? It's obvious I'm going to get sick and die, but not now and really notice. I noticed that in my own mind uh, recently. I don't know. I wasn't really sick. I mean, nothing horrible was happening, but I was lying down somewhere. I don't know where or when or what was going on, but it was just a sense of things got really kind of fuzzy, like my blood blood pressure went low or something, and I almost fainted, and I could see my mind going, oh, well, I wonder if this is the thing. You know, who knows? I wonder if this is the thing that's like dying or that's really starting something. And that was a, a moment of just open I wonder, immediately followed by, no, not now, Mm-mm, not me. Not gonna happen now. <laughs> and it wasn't, you know, but just to see how the mind does that. Yeah, sure, we know, but. And that's the obvious, that's the most obvious part of the first noble truth of Dukkha. So, and I'll, I'll get to say what we do with that as I go on, but there's that. There's the other aspect, the secondary aspect of dukkha as, an, as a noble truth is, of course, there's pleasant experience. There's beautiful experience. Dukkha isn't just about unpleasant Vedana. It's about the fact that there's pleasant feeling, there's neutral feeling, there's unpleasant feeling, and they're all constantly changing that dukkha part is that there's nothing that we can, or anyone can, rely upon, hold to, really for more than a fraction of a minute, for any kind of lasting happiness or suffering. So it's this unreliability of things that he's calling dukkha. Remember, that doesn't mean aversion. The aversion comes in the second noble truth why we suffer from this. But the fact that There's one place where the Buddha says, in terms of, he's talking about feeling tone, some conversation I think he was having with Sariputta, about Sariputta's awakening. And he says, all feeling, let me say exactly, whatever is felt, and in felt he's, he's talking about Vedana, feeling this sense of pleasantness, unpleasantness, neutrality, which is a mental experience, experience of the mind. Whatever is felt is included within Dukkha not because it means it's all unpleasant, but because whatever is felt, whatever arises due to conditions, ceases. And he's calling that the first truth of Dukkha because we can't hold to it for any stability, for any lasting sense of self or pleasure or reliability, just nothing's reliable when we understand that in those moments when, you know, and we all have moments. I keep saying moments because everything's moments. If you're waiting for the lasting understanding that you never have to look again, we tend to discount. First, that's never going to happen because nothing's lasting. But we then discount that is, as I said the other, last week, it's just moments. So in a moment, when you really say, oh, that's nothing I can hold to, you all have moments of that. In that moment, craving and clinging doesn't arise, or if it's there, it just goes away because it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. You don't have to talk yourself out of it. It just doesn't make sense because yata bhuta, jnana dasana, when we're seeing things the way they are, just the reality of things, bah, clinging doesn't make sense. It's not some huge renunciation. It's a moment of, of opening to how things are, of tenderness, connectedness to life as it is. No need to push away what's difficult, no need to hold on to what's pleasant to try and confirm a sense of me. But as is everything, those moments are also fleeting. And then here we are again, and ah, no, it's so hard. So pleasant is also included within dukkha. And that's to be understood, that's not to be hated, this is just to see how it is the Buddha, saying to really understand this. He's saying, before my enlightenment, O monks, while I was still a Bodhisatta, it occurred to me, what is the gratification in the world? What is the danger in the world? And what is the escape from the world? And then it occurred to me, whatever pleasure and joy there is in the world, this is the gratification in the world. He's not saying we hate pleasure and joy open to dukkha and never smile again. He's not saying that. He's saying the pleasure and joy there is in the world, the pleasant vedna, this is the gratification. That the world is impermanent, bound up with dissatisfaction and subject to change. This is the danger in the world. The abandoning of desire and lust for the world. By the world... He's just meaning any of the six sense experiences. The abandoning of desire and lust for the world. This is the escape from the world. He's using world in that way. We may hear escape from the world as somehow zooming off to some other realm, you know, you don't have to live in this world. That is not the Buddha's awakening. But he's talking about what's the danger? There is gratification. We enjoy it. We appreciate it. But we just, as Eckhart Tolle says, we appreciate the beautiful. We just don't look to it to give us something that it cannot provide, which is some sense of lasting anything. Happiness, pleasure, sense of self. A moment of pleasure, a moment of love, a moment of ease, a moment of unpleasantness. We don't look to any of it to be more than just what it is in that moment. This is to be understood. And so in this understanding, we start to see, just from this yata bhuta opens us into seeing that, again, the second noble truth is often said, says that is the cause of suffering is tanha, thirst, craving. I want to expand it, because really, there's no craving without ignorance, without not seeing clearly, without delusion. Really, that's the aspect of ignorance, of delusion. It doesn't mean, you know, we're stupid jerks. It means we don't recognize accurately. We perceive wrongly, and on that wrong perception, we have thoughts and emotions and reactions, and we create a whole world in two-tenths of a second based on one perception, you know, and then start suffering from it. So the cause of our anguish is, all these reactions of heart and mind, the clinging to the pleasant, the fear, the aversion, the pushing away of the unpleasant Vedana, or experiences we rate as unpleasant. And both of these are fueled, only arise, when there's ignorance, confusion, delusion in the mind. So we'll talk more about that. Now these seem natural. I mean, it seems instinctive, doesn't it? You know, if if there's an unpleasant sensation, or if, you know, there's a, a hot flame and it, you stick your finger in it and it hurts, you pull your finger back. I mean, we're not saying you don't do that. That's normal. That's obvious. That's what our mind does with unpleasant. It pulls back and goes, oh, no, that shouldn't be happening. Right? That just seems normal. It's in Of course, bad things shouldn't be happening. When something is pleasant, we like, but here in, in your sittings, in your walkings, when the body's at ease, you think, yeah, right, that's how it should be. They're saying relax. Now I'm relaxed. That's right. That's correct, right? That's how it's supposed to be. The pain comes in the back. That's incorrect. That's wrong, that, right? And that just seems normal, right? That's how we live in our life. You see why the first noble truth is so profound? And the delusion part, I mean, one aspect is we just don't know what the heck's going on. But that's actually the most obvious type of delusion. That one we wake up from eventually, one hopes, To Met with the more subtle delusion, which is the misperception, the not seeing, and that fueling that it's really all about me. Because if we're reacting with greed to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant, that's only because it's me here, you know. Like, I'm not really reacting to such a version if you get stuck, you know, with a fork, you know, that's all, I'm oh, gee, I'm really sorry, that must hurt, you know. <laughs> Me is like, oh my God, you know, this is unbearable. But actually, that's why, just moving from that into compassion, that's why compassion is actually an expression of the non-diluted heart and mind. Because compassion is, as she's stuck with the fork, I feel it. It doesn't mean empathetic that I physically feel it, but that sense of, it's not worse because it's happening to me than because it's happening to her. There's just this sense of, oh, this pain, this suffering is, is suffering. The heart's open to it, whatever, because there's not that delineation, that separation of, well, I'm sorry for you, but Let's keep the, you know, it's all about me. So it seems, but it really, you were laughing, because it does seem normal that unpleasant stuff is wrong. And that's where our mind goes about it. We blame ourselves. We blame the world. We think we've got to get it really, really deep down. And I said this the other night. Enlightenment, at some level, is about things should get more pleasant. Enlightenment is not about all this back pain I'm having, these traumatic memories that are coming up, this unpleasant feelings that I'm having are in the way of my practice. They must go away so that I can see what's really going on, which is subtle <laughs> and refined and concentrated and hopefully blissful. Nyatabhuta, <laughs> things as they are now in this moment. I'm going to read this later, but it seems to be coming up now. This is actually from Adi Ashanti. I really like it. He's saying abiding, but I'm using acceptance, which is clear mindfulness, meeting what's happening just as it is. Accepting means letting everything be as it already is, no matter what it is. If you're feeling good, let that be as it is. If you're feeling bad, let that be as it is. No matter what your emotional, physical, or mental state, let it be as it is, not wishing for it to be otherwise. And I'll add, if you're wishing for it to be otherwise, notice that and let it be as it is. If you want it to be different from what it is, that's not acceptance. You're picking and choosing and trying to control your experience, which of course we all do because it's so deeply in there, natural. That's why we don't understand the First Noble Truth, that unpleasant is the problem. Awakening somehow is going to rid us of this problem. So recognizing, understanding the truth of dukkha leads us to being able to see how these habits of reactivity, of aversion, of grasping and clinging, of delusion, of making it all about me, feed the confusion, the dissatisfaction, the pain, because everything we're doing to try and fix the pain, to try and feel happy, is predicated on not recognizing things as they are. Something that really helped me, and it was pretty far into my practice in terms of this, where I would think I was just being with what is, being with what is, I really understood, and then I'd find that little niggling seed back there of, oh no going for it should be pleasant. This bad thing shouldn't be happening. This unpleasant thing shouldn't be happening. It's wrong. It's bad. It's my fault or it's your fault or it's the weather's fault or it's it's somebody's fault because it's not supposed to be happening or I'm a failure. That's the other way. We turn it back on ourselves, right? You're going good when it's pleasant. When it's unpleasant, you're a failure. You can't do this practice. It isn't working. All of those things. Anyway, what helped me is... I mean, this is not like a kind of a duh, as in Dukkha, but duh experience. Was, uh, <laughs> looking at the Buddha's life after he was enlightened, fully enlightened. So he's the fully enlightened one, freed from anguish, freed from suffering. No more greed, hatred, delusion arising in his heart, in his mind. That's one of the ways uh, freed mind and heart is described, which I have to say that does sound pretty nice, doesn't it? No more reactivity to experience. Without greed, hatred, delusions. Just pure being with things as they are. Wakeful, but not resisting. But looking at his life after, it wasn't. If you try to just imagine living the life he was living, it doesn't sound like a birthday party, you know? He spent 45 years, unless you hate birthday parties. He spent 45 years after he was awakened walking around India barefoot, teaching, eating one meal a day, going begging for his food, forming a sangha of monks, a sangha of nuns. And if you read the suttas, if you read the vinaya, people were the same then as now, right? <laughs> I mean, you listen to the politics, you listen to what's going on in the EU when they meet, you listen to any kind of group of people meeting and trying to come to some decisions, Okay, take it to meditation centers. I got news for you. It's the same thing. Well, you read how all the rules in the Vinaya came about. The monks are always going, oh, he's doing this, she's doing that. And the Buddha said, okay, I have to make a rule. You know, you don't do this, you don't do that. (laughs) Try and keep the peace. Try and not have the lay people lose their faith. Oh, yeah, I'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> anyway, looking at looking at his life, he had the choice when he fully awakened. He could, at will, spend all of his time in deepest samadhi, just complete bliss of peace, or he could put his mind into nibbana, into just cessation, and just hang out there. And you'll see sutras where he said, "I've just come from a, a calm day's abiding, from a f- pleasant day's abiding." I mean, that would be nice. He could have spent his whole life doing that, but he didn't. Motivated by compassion, by in a sense of seeing the unnecessary suffering of beings, but his life was not one of comfort. It was not one of ease. It was not one of pleasant vedana particularly at all. He could have chosen any way to live, you know. He chose the life of a renunciate he was willing to be a teacher which both had all the you know the joys and the beauty of sharing the dhamma and the the sangha difficulties and just being in india with all of these you know wanderers coming around haggling with him all the time there's lots of suttas like that and he gives his thing and they shake their head and go away you know it's just and he had um, rivalries his cousin devadatta tried to kill him and take over the sangha there was sorrowful things where some of his clan's people got involved in a war over water rights, and many of them were killed, and he had to go kind of help to pacify that. His most beloved favorite disciples died shortly before he did, and he just they're just saying he was aware. I mean, he wasn't prostrate with grief, but he was aware of their, their being gone. You know, he said, look, I see the Sangha is empty, empty of Sariputta and Moggallana. Get that sense of loss. In other words, He awoke into this life, not into some, you know, rarefied deva realm. He was in a body. He died of food poisoning. I mean, he had headaches. He would have to go lie down. He was living a life in a body like we are now. Yet he was free of suffering. He was not free of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral vedna. He was not free of the fact that everything changes. He was free of seeing things inaccurately and needing for things to be different, to be at ease. He was really awoken fully into this world, fully engaged in this world with people, with beings. He didn't just stay with people, you know, with beings in all realms, of all walks of life. And so when I looked at that, I thought, "Whoa, you know, this awakening isn't about escaping from life, and it isn't about getting rid of my body pains, my personality. We'd like to, maybe, but, you know, here it is. But it's about understanding, understanding where the suffering really is and where the freedom is. And it's right here. The freedom's here, and the suffering's here, because there's only here. But the freedom is in that recognizing accurately, Yata bhuta, the reality of what's happening, in mind and body, in this moment. So I just want to talk a a bit about how then greed, hatred, and confusion, mm, how they distort the perception, I mean just a little bit, how they cause our suffering and increase it and perpetuate it because they're so familiar. They're so familiar. And then our familiar reaction, like when we see clinging, or grasping, for example, or you see aversion, for example, and then we have the intellectual understanding, oh, this is the cause of suffering. It's so ingrained that what's our usual reaction to that? Aversion. Oh, there's aversion. I shouldn't be having aversion. You know? No, this is just a natural ingrained response. Clinging. Oh, my God. All I'm seeing is clinging. It's hopeless. I'm hopeless. I'll never be happy. You know? Aversion to the clinging. And when we come in and we say, "You know what? That's great. Seeing clinging arising in every moment—that's fantastic. Because that's the way to freedom. When we really see it, I'm happy when I see clinging in my mind, because when I see it, it's not color in the show. When I don't see it, that's a whole other story. When I recognize aversion, I'm glad to recognize. I'm not saying I'm glad it's there. I'm not saying, oh, great, welcome aversion, let's kiss it, we love it. I'm not saying that. But I'm glad to recognize it. It's just nature. Clinging is just nature. It's just the way our minds are habituated. Delusion is just nature. You're not, you know, some special person more filled with clinging than anybody else here. <laughs> you know, nobody gets like that points for being the most clinging person, or the most aversive person, or the most deluded person. We all have all of it. We take turns being the most, being the least. It's just nature manifesting and changing all the time. Don't take it so personally. It's all, we just have, clinging comes up, we make a whole big story about it. Me, 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 you know, So, and then we're suffering. Clinging comes. Oh, clinging's like this. Okay, I don't like it too much. Oh, aversion's like this. Wow, it's all about me. Me is like this. (laughs) I'm serious. I mean, I know it's not always that easy. But notice the place that you stop. The place that the moment-to-moment noticing stops. Because that's the place that we've landed. And it's, it's not always a pleasant place. Sometimes it's an unpleasant place. But that's the place we've landed and started to really get into the story of me. Whatever it is, but again, recognizing is just that tai chi move. Oh, story of me is like this, and then it all starts flowing again. Okay, so how these habits can obscure. I'm just going to give some simple examples. Obvious with clinging, with craving, which is Andrea said this morning, is the the habit of mind that follows unpleasant when there's not awareness, when there's not attention. But we don't have to be afraid of it. We just watch to see how the mind works. Yata bhuta, how the mind works, both with delusion and with clear seeing. So one thing with clinging, when say, let's take something simple like there's, there's craving for an object, a good kind of food, or for lunch, or you saw, someone put a, their spare pillow back there and you noticed it in the whole sitting, you were just clinging, how can I get out of here first and get to that pillow before someone <laughs> else does, right? That's clinging. Simple. The suffering of that, that's relatively obvious, huh? But not always. Clinging is sometimes hard to separate the attachment from the object we're clinging to. And so, especially for, for um for people where clinging it really comes a lot with pleasant objects, and you can go and get the pleasant object. And when you get the pleasant object, the clinging goes away, you have the pleasant object and you feel peace. And you think, well, what was the big problem with that? And so when it's like that, in fact, someone at the last retreat I was teaching was asking this, he's saying, Well, if I move and then it doesn't hurt, that's fine, right? So what's the problem with clinging? You know, I think I think I want to not hurt. I move, it doesn't hurt. Are you saying you just never do anything? Of course we're not saying that but it's learning to tease out the difference between clinging and the object clung to. That makes it, so, clinging can, the Tibetans have a great phrase, It kind of, clinging puts feathers on the object. It kind of brightens it up, you know, you want something and you just, it, it looks so great, it looks so wonderful, you can't see clearly. And then the clinging narrows our field of perception. It narrows our mind. It narrows our heart. You can almost feel it like that. In fact, the Buddha said that clinging and aversion are makers of measurement in the mind, in the heart. And you can really feel that. How does it feel when you're just doing a walking meditation, you're just walking and very present, and the lunch bell rings? Is there a change in the mind, in the walking? Just notice that. It doesn't have anything to do with whether the thing wanted is bad or good. It's not saying that clinging, its nothing wrong with clinging to lunch, you need lunch, everyone needs to eat, what's the problem? Don't get into that rationality thing. Notice the effect when there's clinging in the mind. It's got nothing to do with any kind of value judgment of the thing clung to. The thing clung to could be a piece of pizza or the idea of enlightenment. It's nothing about what's clung to. It's that quality of clinging craving in itself. It's a particular factor of mind that narrows. I'll give you an example I've used a few years ago when I was teaching a retreat in Yucca Valley, which you know is in the desert in Southern California. I really love it's a wonderful desert with Joshua trees and animals and I love everyone loves walking out in that desert. And one of the 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 hits, the thrills, the things that people love if they're walking is to get to see one of the big tortoises which there's a few out there, you know, but they're shy and they hide and you don't necessarily get to see them. And this one year, I was out walking, and just, I just loved being in that desert. So at that time, just walking, present, whatever's there, just, there wasn't a sense of measurement. There wasn't a sense of me or other, just, just being. And I'm not thinking, oh, Anata, no me or other, it's just being, you know? <laughs> and it pops in my mind, oh, maybe I'll see a tortoise. And then that thought turned into a real, that's just a thought, but it turned into craving. I want to see a tortoise. And my walk turned into walking. I got, really, it's like the scope narrowed. I got tense. I'm looking for a tortoise. And I'm walking along, and I'm looking. And my mind's going, not tortoise, not tortoise, not tortoise. You know, you're just <laughs> looking for the thing. That's what clinging does. That's what clinging does. Right? Notice that. It's a maker of measurement often we can get the thing clung to, and that hides the fact of the suffering of clinging. And it's the suffering of measurement. It's the suffering of making difference. And then we go on to create whole worlds. I don't have to describe how we create whole worlds out of clinging, out of wanting. So here, when we notice clinging, not to talk ourselves out of it, but turn around, look back at the wanting mind itself. Experience See if what I'm saying resonates with your experience. Do you feel that sense of tightness, that sense of narrowness, that sense of... And hang with it. Instead of going to get what you want, we get what we want and we feel happy. Why? Because the clinging went away. That's why we feel happy. The Buddha's brilliant insight is, we could be happy without getting what we want, by just noticing when clinging... Oh, clinging's like this. This is how clinging experience in the mind and the body, yata Buddha clinging is like this. It's simply a mental experience, some physical expressions maybe. I feel a physical tightness often. And it's just another arising experience. Nothing to hate or fear. Clinging is like this. Clinging is like this. It will go away because everything does. And then just notice, oh, just peace until the next clinging arises. Aversion, kind of the same thing, only it's more of either a lashing out, pushing away, or a pulling away, but the same, it's the same kind of experience and how it distorts our perception and our judgment. So again, it's interesting because with aversion, dosa, translated usually as hatred, it's about some unpleasant sight, sound, smell, taste, uh, a mental experience or touch that's happening now because there's only now. Even a memory of something horrible in the past, that's a memory arising now. You can experience the unpleasantness of it. And aversion springs up that this shouldn't be happening, right? That's really from not understanding the first noble truth. This unpleasant thing shouldn't be happening. And there's some way I can either stop it or get the hell out of here and not have to deal with it. Or blame somebody you know, or fix the world, or just zone out completely, or take a pill, or whatever. I'm not saying we don't take pills when we're in pain, or take, I'm not saying that. But noticing how aversion completely distorts our judgment, because we're so fearful of the unpleasant, we're so aversive to the unpleasant, that it's almost like we're afraid to even go there, and we can do all kinds of crazy stuff. Not to feel it or to fix it or to make it go away. And it can actually distort our visual feel. Like if you're really angry with somebody, really angry and caught in it, and you keep looking at them, how do they look? Do they look nice? Do you think, oh, don't I really like their hair today? You know? <laughs> Your mind goes to everything that's wrong with them, stuff you never knew was wrong with them. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, when the mind's in aversion, it seeks out the unpleasant, and it just riles itself up. It just spins in it. It's like, like, like you know, if you have a little jagged tooth, a little piece of your tooth doesn't even hurt. Can your tongue leave that little jagged piece of tooth alone? All your other teeth are fine. Is your tongue noticing your other teeth? No. This little jagged tooth? You know, you're ready to shoot yourself after a day. Why? Just a little unpleasant experience that we go uh, uh, uh. The Buddha said, when one dwells with a mind obsessed and oppressed by ill will, and that's how it feels when we're caught in it. It doesn't mean forever, but even in a moment, you know, we're obsessed, oppressed by ill will. And when we do not understand as it really is, the escape from arisen ill will. On that occasion, one neither knows nor sees as it really is. One doesn't see one's own good, or the good of others, or the good of both. I would say the same for craving. When we're obsessed with craving, when we're obsessed with ill will, we can't see things as it really is. And when we need to act, we can't see what's good for ourselves, what's good for others, or what's good for both. So, acceptance... This quality of mindfulness that just meets what's happening, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, not for any result, but just to see what's happening now. That quality of acceptance is not passive. That's what allows for the clear seeing, the clear vision of things as they are, and that allows for appropriate response, clear decision. The Buddha lived a very active life. He made clear decisions as to how to live his life not passive at all, but the decisions can be based more on reality. A simple simple example story from a friend of mine who told me a few years ago in Massachusetts. She lives in Massachusetts and she teaches and she was invited by a very close friend to come teach a weekend in Washington DC, which is like an eight-hour drive. and She really didn't want to do it. She was really busy to cram in this weekend going down to Washington. was really stressful. She was already stressed. It wasn't, you know, something that would save all beings. You know, it's like she really didn't want to do it. But this friend was a dear friend. And so the person who was asked, my friend, she, whenever she would think of saying no to her friend, it felt so unpleasant. She felt so bad at having to say no to her friend that the very thought of that, well, she was aversive to that thought. She didn't even want to go near that unpleasant feeling. So in order to avoid, Having to face that unpleasant feeling, she came extremely close to agreeing to go do this thing, which was really not just a little bit she didn't want to do it. It would have really put her over an edge. And she got so close to saying, I'll do it, just to avoid that one unpleasant feeling of saying no to her friend, she would have gone into, you know, a whole week, weekend and subsequent probably illness. It's crazy. We can't see clearly. Thankfully for her, she said, oh, that's what I'm doing. I can just call up my friend and with all the love in my heart say, you know, this is the truth of my situation. I can't do it right now. And of course, her friend was totally fine with that. You know, it was all a manufactured story. But we can't see clearly when our mind is obsessed with wanting, when our mind is obsessed with uh, aversion. And both of them, of course, lead to the mind being obsessed with it's all about me, 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 me. And this is where the thoughts and the whole creation of a world just springs out of, you know, a reaction of holding on to pleasant or pushing away unpleasant. Again, don't believe me. See if you notice. Quite a few people have mentioned just little examples of that from here. I mean, one very, very common example, since we're all here in this room together and we're all going through all different kinds of experiences, a very common example is when someone else in the room is making a noise that basically our story is they shouldn't be making that noise or it's ruining my concentration. That's the story. Or somebody's moving or they come in late or they leave early or somebody gets ahead of you in the lunch line or whatever. It doesn't take much to find something. And to see how, in the beginning, when it first happens, whatever it is, there's a sound. It's unpleasant. There's an immediate story about it, isn't it? They shouldn't be doing that, or they're doing it because yada, 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 or this is the effect it's having on me. Should I move? Should I not? I shouldn't move because then they'll know, or I shouldn't move because I should be a better yogi than this, or no, 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 no. A whole world is created, isn't it? And even if you try not to do it, you have a whole idea of who that other person is, their life story, how completely insensitive they are, how they, you know, shouldn't have been allowed in this retreat, whatever it is. And I mean, I'm not, no one here, okay, nobody here has said this, but I'm serious. But I've been in retreats with people, not seriously, but their mind goes to, you know, they're like throttling the other person, you know, or hitting them over the head. I mean, it gets, it gets out there. It gets out there. Thank God you're in silence. (laughs) Really? Why do you think? (laughs) When the hindrances take over and you're talking, oh my God. So that's the whole world. And when we're not recognizing, there's just a perception of a sound. It's unpleasant. And then how that relates to me. I don't like it. And then thoughts start. That's what's happening. At some point, maybe the thoughts change. Maybe the mind quiets down, and the same sound comes again, and the mind just there with the sound, and this time it doesn't register as unpleasant. It registers in neutral. And go, oh. And then all those thoughts don't come that time. Go, oh. It's just hearing. Neutral. No thought is kind of like, well, what now? And then the mind generally makes up another story, which is just as plausible to us. But what it means, well, oh, I saw, I made that up, but now it's not that way. Ah, oh, this person's really not how I thought, and I'm actually much wiser than I thought. <laughs> and, you know, and, and maybe we notice that and maybe we don't. If we do notice it, fine, great, because yata bhuta, that's what the mind does. Mindfulness can simply notice that. We don't have to stop it. That's aversion. That's what the mind does. But I don't think it should do that. It should do... No. Yata Buddha. How does the mind work? When there's pleasant and we don't recognize, it goes into wanting. It makes up all these stories. Joseph likes to say we're making it all up. And he's not exaggerating. Watch that. But with humor, just say, wow. You know, make it up this. And sometimes do it on purpose. Notice you're wanting something. And just with real awareness, watch the story the mind creates. But watch it. And then take your attention right back to the scent store. Say it was a smell at lunch and it got hunger going. Take your, just go right back into smelling, smelling. Notice if it's pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. That's not in your control. It just arises. But that can change from moment to moment. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral is not inherent in the object. It's a felt experience in the mind. Something that I, in this moment, experience as pleasant, someone else might experience as neutral or unpleasant. Something I experience as pleasant now, I might experience as unpleasant or neutral at another time. There's nothing steady state here. So when you've got a whole story going and you notice it, and then just come back if there's some experience that's arising again, a smell, a sound, a sight. Come right back into seeing, right at the eye door, smelling right at the nose door. Notice if there's a pleasant, unpleasant neutrality. And then see if any story comes. How does that affect me? That's how the story starts and see where that goes with awareness. And just watching it, the more we watch it, the less energy it has. It's amusing. Sometimes the stories are useful, but we know we don't have to believe them all. And in the middle of one, you go, wow, that's really quite a story. And I really believe it, too. And then I'll just feel, ugh, aversion. And that's just what's happening right now, aversion. You don't have to fight it away. It's really fascinating. So the escape. The escape from unpleasant, the escape from the aversion from the clinging the delusion is simply this quality of mindfulness, acceptance. Their mindfulness means mindfulness of just what's happening, not of our concept about what's happening. That is so key, and that's what we're pointing to so much in the interviews. When we say what's happening, you say, oh, well... You know, the breath is like fire and it's swirling. But, yeah, but well, what does it feel like? You know, well, you know, it's like this in the air and the Go but, Yeah, but, but what's the sensation? You know, pressure. I mean, it's kind of deflating, isn't it? <laughs> but that's yata bhuta. <laughs> oh, yeah, pressure. If you look, it may be deflating. It's also quite peaceful. But we kind of, at times, are addicted. To our endless stories, even though that's where the suffering is. Who would I be without my incredibly obnoxious personality? (laughs) 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 But that's just fear. It won't go away. I really won't. But that sense of, oh, it's just this. Just this, free of concept. So when we say, um, I have an example somewhere, see if I can find it. No. it. As I say, it's about noticing just what is, not our concept of what is. And this is very tricky. And so, for example, there's a burning feeling, you know, there's a pain in my knee. And that might be said not with aversion, but, oh, there's a pain in my knee. But that's already concept. If you recognize, oh, a pain in my knee, my knee, knee is an idea. It's a useful idea. We're not saying it's wrong, but it's a, con- are you actually experiencing my knee? What is that? What you're experiencing is a particular sensation. Maybe it's burning. Maybe it's tingling. Pleasant, unpleasant, Neutral just that one sensation. As soon as we go, my knee measurement has come in. It's a knee belonging to me. And if you look, if you're really with the sensation, for it to be my knee, there's a reference back to some sense of me. There's some looking outside that bare experience to something else. Comparison. My knee. And immediately goes, how will I make it through the sitting? It goes right into the future. My knee goes right It's that far away from the whole story of my health, my whole life, the skiing accident I had 25 years ago. How am I going to make it through the rest of this month? I have to go to the managers. What about the hospital? What about that? that far away from my knee, right? Burning. It's just burning. I mean, it's just burning. That's peace. It's still burning, but it's peace. There's just not all these constructions. And so that's really what we're talking about with this sense of bare mindfulness. Mindfulness that accepts what is, just meets whatever's happening without resistance, without pushing away, without holding on, without picking and choosing, without making a meaning for it. Sharon Salzberg likes to say that to pay attention is to love. To pay attention... This mindfulness, this accepting quality of mindfulness is just to really, as Byron Katie says, loving what is. What is, whatever's arising in this moment is what is. Loving what is means not loving, oh God, loving really isn't about me. Loving is this quality of accepting, open, connected attention. Just being here with what is. And that allows for reality to reveal itself just nature, how it is in this moment, allows for the clear seeing, the yata bhuta dasana, this mindfulness beneath the concept, allowing whatever is arising in this moment to reveal itself, loving what is. And it's really only when this clear seeing in a moment is present, a moment of allowing whatever's arising in this moment just to be as it is really embraced in the in the energy and the light of clear awareness kind awareness really loving what is it's only then that real compassion and real love is possible because without that this we can we you know we can care we can do good i'm not saying that of course but real compassion Real love, a real opening into life in a whole nother way is only possible when we're seeing things as they really are. With this quality of active, engaged, accepting presence. Not passive at all. But like just like that sense of burning I said, rather than my knee. In that burning, it's just what it is. Not referring back to me, but there's no problem. There's no making of self and other. So this clear seeing opens us to a really different relationship to life, to others. Like the Buddhas, you know, he opened into life. His awakening was a full engagement with life, but not from a self-centered perspective. You know, we stop, and we all experience that in moments when you do feel real compassion, real love, and we all do. It's not some esoteric thing. We all know this. We all experience it. And if your mind's going, well, not me, no, 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 see that that's just that story at that moment. But when we're not engaging from this self-centered place, other people and the world no longer, it's about, it's no longer about that other people are somehow there to gratify us. It's not about needing other people to be any particular way to make us okay. It's not about needing anything from anybody else. But it's not like, oh, I don't need you. You know, it's not that. We don't need, but we can be there. You just, so much energy goes into this construction. Actually, the delusion, the aversion, the clinging, the sense of trying to make things okay for ourselves, the sense of trying to fight away the unpleasant, the stories. And the story here turns into a story against yourself because you don't want to have the stories and you don't want to be doing this, so then you just pile of version on top of that, you know, I shouldn't be doing this. Same thing. So much energy goes into that. So sometimes when you have an insider, there's a moment, some moments of just seeing, Yatha Bhutta, as it is, nothing special. So much energy is released, is available. And then energy is available for appropriate response, for compassion, for generosity, for kindness, for acting you know, in the way that's appropriate, that isn't about serving me. We don't get there by thinking about it, but it's not so far away for a moment. And we're not going to live there all the time, but we all know it in moments. So... I think I'll just end there. Oh, thank you. Let's just sit quietly for a minute.